Welcome to the next edition of the Law of Nations podcast. My name is Angeline Welsh. I'm a barrister here at Matrix. Uh, we've had a bit of a break for a while um, just because we've all been extremely busy, but I'm pleased to say that we're back and we're back with a vengeance because I have with me Sarah Grimmer, who's Secretary General of the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, uh, formerly Senior Legal Counsel at the Permanent Court of Arbitration. Welcome to the Law of Nations podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Angeline. And also with us is uh, Joe Liu, who is Managing Counsel at HKIC, um, Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, um, and a former colleague of mine at Allen Overy when um, I was spending my time in the Hong Kong office. Um, welcome to... London, Joe, welcome to Matrix for this recording. Thank you, Angeline. So, um, the Law of Nations um, blog, we, we tend to focus on the uh, international law before the UK courts or UK international relations. So, many people might sort of start with the question why is it that uh, we're now going to talk, spend a podcast talking about Hong Kong uh, and HKC in particular? But there is actually quite a lot of parallels between. Um, Hong Kong and London, both as jurisdictions, both common law jurisdictions, very much draw from the legal, same legal tradition. And one of the things that I thought we might start off by talking about, um, because uh, the surveys are endlessly talked about in the arbitration world for good reason, is the, um, the White and Case Queen Mary 2018 um, survey. Um, just looking at how London and Hong Kong compare as seats. So London, I'm pleased to say, has been ranked in the top position uh, again uh, this year. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the survey, if I read it correctly, is that it was London was ranked as um, a strong preference in all regions of the world. Um, Hong Kong is, I think, in... Uh, uh, your your fifth place now, I think. Par- is that right? Fourth. I'm I'm demoting you. I'm sorry. I'm inviting you as guest here. I'm demoting you already. Fourth, previously third. So the 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 one thing that really surprised me about London's ranking, of course, London's absolutely brilliant um, seat for arbitration. I'm bound to say that. But one thing that sort of surprised me is that it would be that it's highly regarded still, for example, in Asia, because one of the things that I think has been really interesting is that actually as we've, over the last sort of five, six years, we've really seen the rise of the arbitration centres in Hong Kong and Singapore in particular for Asian disputes, which makes perfect sense because you've got quality people out there, quality arbitration institutions. So why do you think that the, you know, disputes may be still referred to London and do you think that actually, I mean, do you think that's accurate? Is your sense that, you know, really Hong Kong and Singapore are really the sort of premier centres for Asia? What are your thoughts on on that? Uh, I think that uh, Hong Kong and Singapore are more and more the, the venues um, for parties that have an Asian connection and for the disputes that have an Asian connection and that London as a seat and say English law as a governing law yeah. is still um, it's still in the mix and we still hear about parties putting in LCIA clauses for example or London as a seat and I think it really depends on the transaction or the project that's um, that's been contracted yeah. so I think there might be an attraction to English as a governing law because of the subject matter of the dispute or the makeup of the parties if you have uh, a foreign party contracting with a Chinese party, for example, they may be able to uh, negotiate English law as a governing law and therefore they'll want to have perhaps London as a seat yeah. um, and have access to 
um, English barristers or English law professionals. But having said that, you know, I think that when it comes to um, disputes that have a strong Asian uh, element, mm -hmm. that we are really seeing the parties choose the venues in the jurisdiction, particularly Hong Kong and Singapore, which are the most sophisticated jurisdictions in terms of legislation and in terms of pools of experts, council, arbitrators and leading institutions. Yeah, I agree with Sarah and I also think that London, London as a seat um, continues to play a very dominant role in some particular industry sectors such as maritime sector. Right. Uh, we still see a lot of uh, shipping uh, agreements entering into by Asian parties. Um, where the parties still agree to London as a seat arbitration, English law as the governing law. Yeah. Um, although I, I agree with Sarah that there is a trend, I think, in Asia where parties are increasingly sort of uh, looking into Hong Kong and Singapore as the venue to resolve those disputes. And there's often a time like these things as well because where you resolve your dispute is predominantly driven by what the arbitration clause says as opposed to agreement to arbitration sure. at the time that the dispute arises. So, you know, it may well be that some of these, there has been a, a shift in the last several years in terms of arbitration clauses, but we just haven't seen those disputes filtering through yet. Yeah, and I think parties, what we see in the Queen Mary survey is that parties are really still very much concerned about costs. And so if a party knows that it can have an option within the region, mm. um, then it, it would be less inclined to opt for somewhere where it might think it has to travel across halfway across the world to have a hearing. I mean, we know that that's not necessarily the case. A yes. seat is a legal concept. Yes. But I think parties, when they're signing clauses, they may not appreciate that yes. fully. And so I think, well, in any event for parties, it's always good to have a range of sound options. And we're seeing that parties, the more experience they have um, in the jurisdictions within Asia, the more likely they are to choose those again. And I wonder, one of the things that's covered in the survey for the first time, because obviously it's a sort of very current issue, is Brexit and what likely impact that will have on London as a seat. Um, so 55% of people surveyed said that they didn't really believe that it would have much impact because the legal infrastructure for arbitration disputes is not going to really change within London, which um, what I think is must be right. Those people who were surveyed who thought that there may have an impact, that it tended, my impression is it tends to resolve around perception issues. So some sort of uncertainty as to the way in which English law, for example, will evolve post-Brexit. Um, again, I don't think there will be, there's any need to be concerned about the uncertainty, but I think there is these perception issues. So in terms of, and those who thought that Brexit might be an issue then were asked, you know, well, what do you see as being the rival seat? And 70% of those people thought, well, Paris is going to be the sort of next rivalry. So I thought, there are a couple of questions in that for you. The first question I have is, to what extent do you think Brexit really poses an opportunity for rival seats and, and for Asian disputes, in particular Hong Kong, do you think London should be concerned about that? That was my first question. What do you think? Well, I think the, the word you use that's key in this is perception. Um, and uh, a lot of choices are made um, in the context of a certain perception, whether or not that is factually borne out. So to the extent that there exists a perception that London is not a favourable seat for whatever reason, there may be reason for um, London practitioners to be concerned that cases will go elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I think um, 
there will be a mixture of, of reactions to Brexit, Some, it, and it also depends how parties are counselled. So um, I, I think there may be a, a possibility of cases moving away, but at the same time, I, I think it's, it's hard to predict. I think for Asian disputes, I don't think Brexit will have that much of impact because um, UK's membership of EU, in my experience, has never been a factor for Asian companies to consider mm -hmm. when deciding whether or not to choose London as a seat arbitration. Yeah. They chose London as a seat arbitration is because of the industry practice, the strong pool of professionals you have here. Um, the courts are highly sophisticated. Um, it is also, you know, convenient location for people to travel to. So I don't think, uh, as far as Asian disputes mm -hmm. are concerned, I don't think Brexit will play a significant impact. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think is quite interesting is just how um, a jurisdiction or a seat tackles these perception issues. And one thing that I suppose London can learn from Hong Kong is how you have tackled perception issues around the fact of your link to China. So Hong Kong is a special administrative region in, uh, of China. Um, it is a very independent jurisdiction, but nevertheless, because it is um, part of China as a whole, it's seen as having a sort of connection with that. To what extent do you think Hong Kong has really had to fight off any perceptions or misperceptions um, around its close connections to China? Do you think that's been a problem for Hong Kong and how, if so, have you addressed it? Yeah, there, misperceptions exist around um, judicial independence in Hong Kong. The reality is, is that the courts are uh, independent and that they are very supportive of the arbitration process. Um, so with respect to judicial independence in Hong Kong, I think that what needs to happen is that there needs to be a, a greater understanding of the reality of the regime in Hong Kong and how judicial independence is, um, is um, protected or how it's established even. So in Hong Kong, the basic law, which is the constitutional law of Hong Kong, provides that the courts of Hong Kong have the, have the final adjudication powers. Um, and that that is a power that is free from any interference. So that is embedded in the constitution. And then in terms of how the courts are uh, populated is also important. So the highest court in Hong Kong is the Court of Final Appeal. And that is populated by judges, Hong Kong judges, and also by non-permanent judges, mm. uh, two of whom are from Hong Kong, and the rest of whom are from other common law jurisdictions. Yes. And those judges are some of the most eminent judges you would find in any common law jurisdiction. So for example, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice Lord Newberger mm. is now a non-permanent judge in Hong Kong. Lord Hoffman has been a non-permanent judge in Hong Kong since the handover in 1997. And he was one of a bench of five that issued a, an important unanimous decision last year with respect to um, the, um, the sentencing of some protests, some pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. So uh, because of that setup, it, the judicial independence of Hong Kong is assured. And what we see in reality when we see the judgments coming out of Hong Kong, we see that that is manifested in their decisions. And there's no question of interference by, for example, Beijing. It's, it's simply not a question. So we, in terms of dealing with misperceptions, we need to speak to users and reassure them of the system that is in place um, so that they understand the reality of um, judicial independence in Hong Kong. 
because it is uh, because of Hong Kong's special status as a special administrative region that's part of China, this is a question that comes up. Mm. Um, so it is one that's important for us to address. And I suppose people will look at the current regime, but they'll also be concerned about the future. So do you, I mean, to, uh, the government in Hong Kong has been tremendously supportive of arbitration. Um, would you think that there would be any changes to this? Or, you know, I suppose that's what people would be concerned about. It's like the Brexit issue. People are concerned about what may happen in future. And they may read reports about, you know, crackdown on demonstrations in Hong Kong and so forth and may think, well, you know, of course, Hong Kong has a tremendous reputation for being independent, but will that change it at any point in the future? I mean, is that something that you have to deal with? And what is the answer to those concerns that people may have? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there is a, a tendency, I think, for um, people to read the media and to conflate some social issues or political issues that they read about with then uh, judicial independence. And I think that that conflation is, is, is a problem because it, I go back to the structure that I just described yeah. of the courts um, and how that, that, that is embedded legally and structurally within the system. Um, so I think that I go back to the issue of perception. Yes. So we're often dealing with perceptions rather than reality. Yes. And so um, reports about a democracy protest um, that might feed a certain perception, but in reality, you, you know, you, you have acts of civil disobedience in Hong Kong. It's a free society. There's freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You have people protesting. It's a healthy, free society. You have that in the UK. You have that all over the world. That's not necessarily a problem. Um, and the Hong Kong SAR government deals with these issues um, as, it, as many other governments would. Um, so, you know, there's, it's not necessarily something unusual or extraordinary, but because of the one country, two systems structure, I think that people tend to ask the second question, ah, is that, is that evidence of an influence from Beijing? But I think that that's many instances that's um, misplaced. Yeah, and just some misunderstanding. It is also not clear like, how those political events in Hong Kong actually impact the arbitration system yes. uh, in Hong Kong. I think it, to that extent, I think it's very similar to our discussion about uh, possible impact of Brexit as a political event mm -hmm. on London as a seat of arbitration. So similarly, those political events do not affect the legal system in Hong Kong. Hong Kong remains as a common law jurisdiction that is based on English common law. The judicial system doesn't change. The arbitration legislation doesn't change. Um, HKIC operates as usual. And uh, I have worked at a center for over four years now. And I supervise the administration of thousands of cases. And I have never experienced any political interference um, during the process. Um, and also, I think if we step out of this question to think, why are those political events really relevant to international arbitration? Mm -hmm. Because your disputes actually decided by an arbitral tribunal that is chosen by parties. If you are concerned about the influence of any particular government or jurisdiction, you can choose an arbitrator from a different jurisdiction. And that is what international arbitration is all about, to, 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 to give you a neutral venue to decide your dispute. Institution is purely to administer um, the dispute, and we do not decide the, um, the merit of the dispute is the arbitral tribunal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, th I suppose 
I suppose a lot of it, I mean, I think a lot of this is all around um, perceptions, perhaps, you know, as noted earlier, when people are determining exactly where their arbitration will be resolved, it's often at the transactional stage. Mm. And they may make decisions on seats based on perception, which has nothing to do, and not, not necessarily always appreciating some of the finer points about party appointments and so forth. I mean, part of me thinks that one of the great advantages for Hong Kong and HKC actually is the fact that you, um, of the uh, relationship that you have with mainland China. I mean, one of the sort of great in um, investment developments that there will be in the, in the forthcoming years is the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and explain exactly what it is? Because there's, I was saying earlier, there's some great videos um, uh, available on the internet which sort of start to explain it. So I now know that Belt is actually um, uh, transport by road and road is transport by sea. But do you want to give a bit more of a sophisticated explanation for that, Sarah? Sure. Um, so the One Belt, One Road initiative was is a um, government policy launched by uh, President Xi in 2013. Uh, so we're five years in and Essentially what the Belt and Road Initiative is, is a massive outbound investment uh, strategy by the Chinese government. And one of its main objectives is to fill the infrastructure gap that exists across Asian jurisdictions. And this is estimated to cost 5 trillion US dollars. Now, um, a lot of the investment coming out of China will be in the form of project financing, mm-hmm. um, so equity loans, for example. And the financing will come from a number of different sources, including multilateral banks like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, also uh, funds that have been specifically set up for this, i.e. the Silk Road Fund, which was originally set up um, as a 40 billion US dollar fund and has received last year, was set to receive another 100 billion that was announced by President Xi as well. But importantly, a lot of the funding is going to come from state-owned banks Chinese state-owned banks and Chinese policy banks, so those are the government banks um, uh, uh, um, that put in place um, government policy, um, and also state-owned enterprises in the construction and infrastructure industries. So all of this financing will be um, provided um, in multiple infrastructure projects and construction projects, and those have already, that's already well underway. Some of the figures that we see in terms of the investment that's already been um, projected or already been spent includes from the Chinese policy banks and the state-owned banks, 425 billion US dollars. Mm. And there are thousands of projects that are going on. So it's really a vast, it's a vast scheme. And um, what it means for business and opportunities in Asia is very important. But obviously what it means in terms of disputes is that there will be many disputes because a lot of this investment is going into jurisdictions which have high political operational credit risk and not the strongest um, judicial or legal or political systems in place. So there are going to be disputes and because they are cross-border transactions, arbitration will be critical as a dispute resolution method. And so within the region, Hong Kong is a leading jurisdiction. It is traditionally the jurisdiction where Chinese parties are comfortable because Hong Kong is a part of China. Yes. And there is a, we have a pool of experts in Hong Kong that can operate in Chinese and in English and have um, knowledge of Chinese law. Um, but Hong Kong as a common law jurisdiction, a mature legal, legal jurisdiction, um, is also attractive to foreign parties. 
and, and judicial independence is a critical key, critical part of that equation. And so that's why Hong Kong is, as a seat, and HKIAC is the flagship institution, that's why we are central in, in what we think will be years and years of a, a lot of important disputes coming out of the Asian region. And what about the sort of ability to enforce Hong Kong arbitral awards on mainland China, which would be relevant to this? Joe, do you want to just explain yeah. how that works? Because that must put you in a better position than some of the other seats in the world which might pick up some of this dispute work. Um, I think the starting point is that under PRC law, Hong Kong awards are treated as a foreign award. Um, and there is a system in place in mainland China that applies to the enforcement of foreign awards, uh, which is the reporting up system. So a local Chinese court um, does not have the authority to refuse the enforcement of a Hong Kong award. Mm. If a local court is money not to enforce, it has to report a matter to a higher people's court. If the higher people's court also is not money to, ref uh, to enforce um, a Hong Kong award, that higher people's court has to ref refer the matter to the Supreme Court in Beijing. Only the Supreme Court has the authority to refuse enforcement of Hong Kong award. So that system significantly enhanced the enforceability of Hong Kong awards in mainland China. Now, because Hong Kong is part of a mainland China, is part of China, so a New York Convention does not apply to mutual enforcement of arbitral awards between Hong Kong and mainland China. To fill the gap, in 1999, the Supreme Court uh, in mainland China and the Department of Justice of Hong Kong government entered into an uh, arrangement of mutual enforcement of arbitral awards between Hong Kong and mainland China. The terms of that arrangement mirror largely um, the terms of the New York Convention with some um, um, modifications. Uh, I think one notable difference between one notable difference between that arrangement and New York Convention is that uh, the enforcement of Hong Kong awards in mainland China does not require recognition. So there is only one stage, which is enforcement. Wow. But if you're enforcing uh, an, uh, an award made in a different foreign, a different foreign jurisdiction, such as London or Singapore or Paris, then you have to go through two stages, which are recognition and enforcement. So because that's quite interesting, because recognition and enforcement is often taken together as one stage, even you know, into the English courts um, and other jurisdictions. So recognition quite often is just a formality, but but does it make a, a difference? In China. in China, so there are two stages. So you have to first recognize the award and then enforcement. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think as a result of this system, HKIC um, and Hong Kong um, arbitral awards enjoy an excellent track record of enforcement in mainland China. And that is often cited as a key advantage um, of HKIC and Hong Kong as a venue of arbitration for disputes between Chinese party and a non-Chinese party. And, and what's the track record like? So you've got this sort of favourable legal regime in place, but um, you know, compared to other um, other seats, do you see that there's a better track record, or can you discern that for Hong Kong? Or, uh... What I would say is that <clears throat> we are very happy with the track record that Hong Kong awards have um, have received to date. That's something we keep an eye on. There have been a number of important decisions um, with respect to awards not being enforced in China coming out of other venues mm -hmm. and I think that users need to be aware of those because there is a risk and there is a question mark um, around similar situations that could arise in other cases and I refer specifically to um, an award that was not enforced uh, coming out of SEAC 
last year, and that was because in that case, under SEAC's rules and also under the ICC rules, um, the SEAC court and ICC are able to uh, put in place a sole arbitrator, notwithstanding that the parties have agreed in their clause to a three-member arbitral tribunal. Um, so that, that's a power embedded in those rules. In HKIAC's rules, we do not take that same power. We would always require the express agreement of the parties to change the number of arbitrators. Um, and last year, um, the um, Shanghai court um, refused to enforce an award in which SEAC had put in place a sole arbitrator over um, a tribunal of three that had been agreed by the parties. So this is a question that parties need to be aware of if, if they're going to go with, those, with institutional rules that allow that yes. and, and the institution does do that, yes. then you may, you may have a problem if you're enforcing in China. Yes. And you know you can argue whether the pros and cons about the Shanghai court's decision, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a question mark. And with the Belt and Road Initiative, there's going to be a lot of work involving Chinese parties, so the enforcement within China is, is, is really important. Yes. Um, so, so we're in the process of revising our rules and we've asked ourselves, do we want to include a power of this nature? And the answer is no, because you know, our work is to ensure that awards can be enforced at the end of the process, not the opposite. We don't want to um, run that risk for parties that they get to the end of the process and they can't enforce. It's interesting you're talking about your rule revision because I think as the world of um, international arbitration has developed, then one of the issues, which is one of the things that we've seen as is that arbitral institutions market themselves through often developments of their rules and seats, you know, sort of market themselves. We've seen India makes significant changes to its legislation, for example, to address the perception that there are serious delays in India if um, you were to seat your arbitration in India, so they've sort of imposed um, time limits and so forth. How has Hong Kong sort of marketed itself through um, changes to the legislation or changes to the rules, particularly given that you've got a rule revision coming up? Um, and how do you see that that positions yourself as being different in the market to other relevant arbitral institutions? There have been a number of uh, recent developments that, uh, uh, that, that, that are aiming at enhancing Hong Kong's um, position as a leading seat of arbitration globally. Um, starting with the legislative changes, um, in January this year, um, the Hong Kong um, Legislative Council passed um, an amendment to the Hong Kong Arbitration Ordinance to clarify that um, any dispute over intellectual property rights can now be submitted to arbitration sitting in Hong Kong mm -hmm. and it would not be contrary to Hong Kong's public policy to enforce any arbitral work concerning um, those disputes. So this amendment is significant uh, in relation to IP dispute because it clarifies that um, disputes, including those disputes concerning the validity or infringement of IP rights, mm -hmm. can also be submitted to arbitration in Hong Kong. Uh, and this sets Hong Kong apart from many other jurisdictions where such position is either unclear yes. or untested yeah. or fall within the exclusive jurisdiction of the local courts. Whereas in Hong Kong, um, you you can bring these disputes to Hong Kong arbitration. And why was IP made a priority? Because, I mean, that is interesting. There's, I mean, for several years, there's been discussion around movement into arbitration for IP disputes. but. 
my perception is still many of them are being resolved by court litigation. So why did Hong Kong take the I think this is in line with Hong Kong's government's policy to promote Hong Kong as a leading IP trading hub uh, in the region. So, um, and Hong Kong has already established a strong reputation um, for, for trading IP matters, uh, patent registration, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, I think the Hong Kong government wants to build a complete package. Um, and also I think you see within, within the Asian region, you see that the activity around intellectual property rights, patents, the number of patents is, um, is growing extreme, is rapid, rapid growth in that area and it's only continuing. So it's you know, one of the leading jurisdictions, if not the leading jurisdiction now in terms of the volume of IP um, activity. Wow, so I think it's really important. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of sort of startup companies and so forth, you know, that's really, I imagine. To accompany that amendment in 2016, the HKIC also launched a panel of RP yes. arbitrators. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's proved really useful for parties to have that specialist list of, yes. of arbitrators with that knowledge from which they can select someone for a case. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we've also just launched now a financial services disputes panel along the same, with the same objective as to give parties um, a much easier choice to see who has a specialist in this area, especially given that Hong Kong is such a financial hub. Yeah, and my perception is, all, again, that men, you know, in Asia, arbitration of financial disputes is very common and that is a contrast to this part of the world where court litigation is still, um, you know, very much favoured. Yeah. Um, the, the second legislative amendment um, that Hong Kong is going to introduce is in relation to third-party funding. Yeah. So um, the Hong Kong uh, Legislative Council passed a bill to allow the use of third-party funding for arbitration and associate proceedings in Hong Kong, yeah. and also in respect of the cost of services provided in Hong Kong, but for arbitral proceedings city outside of Hong Kong. Um, so um, that amendment has not yet come into force, um, but we anticipate that um, the amendment will probably come into force later this year. Uh, so that again um, is widely regarded as a welcome development in Hong Kong. Because are you seeing a lot of third party funding in Hong Kong? I mean we've sort of, I mean last again five years there's been a huge amount. We, it, it, London as a jurisdiction hasn't had to make changes to its legislation in order to facilitate that because it already exists. So I think third-party funders have felt more confident about coming into this market, but what are you seeing in terms of level of comfort and of third-party funders and awareness of users in Asia on third-party funding? I think, that, um, I think that once the legislation is passed, we will see a lot more. Right. We will really yes, start so to see still. it because in mainland China, it's, it's, very, it's common, it's, it's, there's no problem, um, and lawyers also work on contingency fees and conditional fees, so mm -hmm. that's really uh, it, once it's in place and once it's lawful in Hong Kong then I think that will open up um, tremendously and we see a lot of activity with third-party funders setting up in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. And also the new amendment would require um, disclosure of the identity of the funder and also existence of third-party funding arrangement. And is that going so, into the legislation? Yes, so mandatory disclosure. Right. So with that mandatory disclosure I would think that uh, funding arrangement will become more visible. I noticed that in your rule revision you're also consulting on disclosure provisions, but um, it, well, it seems that that would mirror what's going on in the legislation, so it wouldn't actually be a fundamental departure in that sense. It would, yeah. Um, uh, and so, so there's a lot of activity then. And is it in that those legislative changes? Presumably, you, I mean, did they go through quite quickly? I mean, what is the process for? 
It, it almost sort of se seems to me that, you know, there's a lot of, because there's a lot of support in, in Hong Kong for arbitration, that these things can happen at a fairly, you know, rapid pace. It's not sluggish at all in any way, which must be a huge advantage. Yeah, I think it's relatively quickly. I, I, I think depending which jurisdiction you're comparing yeah. with. Um, but um, in terms of third-party funding, the process started in 2013, where the Hong Kong Law Reform Commission was um, tasked to look into this issue. Yeah. And uh, three years later, um, the Hong Kong LegCo um, passed the bill to that effect. I think it's, um, I think, I think efficiency is one thing that the Hong Kong community uh, sort of bears that in mind when introducing new reform, but also they want to make sure that this is done very carefully. They right. look into the issue very, very thoroughly. They want to make sure that the amendment that came out of it is, um, you know, is a well thought through uh, amendment. Um, so I can, I can understand why uh, for, for some amendment it takes longer than other amendments. I think the IP amendment it took a little bit less time mm -hmm. because it's a relatively more straightforward yeah. issue where yeah. the third party funding, uh, it is a breakthrough for Hong Kong because uh, it was previously prohibited under Hong Kong law. Right. Um, okay. So it represents okay. a significant departure from the, from the previous position. So I think they need um, to look into this, this issue very, very carefully. There is one other question I just want to ask about practice of arbitration in um, Hong Kong and, and mainland China um, before, before I want to ask, ask another Brexit-related question. My question is about ArbMed because um, obviously in China, um, well obviously to people maybe who practice there, that there is a lot more of a culture of um, a mediation and arbitrators, arbitrators performing mediation and then going back into the arbitrator role and that's a lot more commonly accepted. Um, whereas in this jurisdiction, um, people will feel distinctly uncomfortable about that. But at the same time, one of the things that we've seen from the Queen Mary report, the 2018, is that you know, um, uh, in-house counsel really would like to see more of an emphasis on mediation. So is there a compromise position? Is Hong Kong going to lead the way in this, given that you know it's sort of experience from the region, um, what's your predictions? Yeah, I, Hong Kong has, a, has an active mediation community uh, and uh, so mediation is alive and well and Hong Kong shares the concerns of the UK uh, community as well that uh, if you act as a mediator you would not then be an arbitrator because you've been privy to ex parte communications. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's a concern that's shared in Hong Kong. Um, but the um, mixture of mediation into arbitration of two-tiered clauses, we see that. We see that in our cases, in our arbitration clauses, um, and we've seen that in action. And I think that with the Belt and Road Initiative, with more involvement of Chinese parties, that that, um, that is going to be much more in demand. And so I think for institutions, the other thing that comes out of the Queen Mary survey is how, how much the community looks to institutions to introduce developments, I think that that is very, a very important area where we will be looking at introducing tools um, to assist in parties navigating their way between arbitration to mediation to arbitration if necessary or from mediation to arbitration. Um, so that's something that I think is very important. So in our new post-Brexit world, um, uh, London may well be looking to Hong Kong um, as the sort of way in which we should market ourselves to address some of these misperceptions. Um, uh, now, one of the, the final question I have really is around seat rivalry, because um, I noticed that 
um, Hong Kong and Singapore switch places this year in the Queen Mary ranking. London is out there, but we've got Paris snapping at our heels and those people who were surveyed on Brexit who thought that, that Brexit may make an impact, so 70% of those suggested that Paris will be the winner. So, so if London does become in the position where and we shouldn't never rest on our laurels, that we should be concerned about other seats immediately in our geography like Paris. What lessons can we learn? Should Is the Hong Kong-Singapore rivalry something that we should look to as, as learning lessons from or is there not re, you know is that rivalry overplayed what's your views on that yeah the rivalry is often you know brought to our attention and, and that we're asked about it I think um, our focus is our our work our cases we have to take care of our cases so that's the primary role of an institution and that's our primary role is to make sure that our cases are run properly and that enforceable awards are the product of that process um, and then there is the work of um, new developments. And so we are involved in our rules revision process and we've just launched the Belton Road Outreach Program, which will involve visiting many recipient jurisdictions of outbound Chinese investment over the next uh, uh, three years. And we've also established a knowledge database for people who need to research the Belton Road Initiative. That's a growing um, source of resources and information, reports, commentary on the Belton Road Initiative. And we've put together just recently the Financial Services Disputes Panel. So all to say that we have in place a number of initiatives that we're working on that serve the community. Um, and we also need to promote our services and our initiatives. And I think that um, that is often where a lot of the competition between institutions is played out, is in that promotional yeah. um, space. And I think that Singapore is a, a great promoter of Singapore. Um, but what, and that's, that's, you know, they've done a tremendous job in promoting themselves. Yeah. Um, but what I think at, at the end of the day is we must make sure that the cases are being dealt with properly um, and that people, when they have an experience with an institution, they go away pleased with the speed with which the institution acted, with the uh, intelligence with which, with which the institution implemented their rules and, and the quality of the appointments um, in, in each case. And so we, are working across all fronts um, and we hope that our users are happy with the services that we provide um, and I think that for all institutions that's really the key is to take care of your cases firstly and foremostly um, introduce initiatives that are meaningful and not just about marketing um, and then to um, tell the world about what you're doing. Yeah I completely agree with Sarah but I also think that an appropriate level of competition is healthy. Um, it also motivates competitors to improve. Um, so I think, um, and also uh, at the end of the day, parties benefit from that process. Um, it presents more viable choices for them. Um, and uh, I think the rapid growth of both Hong Kong and Singapore is a reflection of um, this healthy competition. And just actually how well arbitration is doing in Asia. Well, um, thanks so much for coming in to um, Matrix to speak to me today about all of this. I mean, certainly as we all sort of have to tackle the future, it's good to be able to learn from each other. And definitely, I mean, Hong Kong has been a jurisdiction to watch for many years. And I mean, it's just only going to continue that way, I think. So thanks very much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you.